Welcome to Men Talk, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of miscarriage, infertility, infant loss, and stillbirth. Hosted by Daniel Landau, founder of menshelpline.org, we'll be sitting down every week with real guys to discuss their stories, struggles, and triumphs. So grab a drink, sit tight, and let's talk. We are live on the Men Talk podcast talking about miscarriage, infant loss, stillbirth, and infertility. I'm very excited about today's guest. Our guest is Rabbi Yosef Shapiro from the suburbs of Atlanta. He is the author of a new book that just came out recently called In It Together, A Candid View of Infertility, A Personal Journey. So I will let you take it away. Feel free to introduce yourself, share a little bit of your story, and we'll, we'll take it from there. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel, for this opportunity. I appreciate it. Um, so our journey begins um, about nine years ago. Um, I had grown up actually prior to that. I grew up in Baltimore and I actually did my MBA in investment banking, but had decided during that process that I would rather become a rabbi. So that's what I ended up training or changing my trajectory towards and got married about nine years ago. And our journey is slightly unique in that our first child was born pretty quickly. So our first child was born without any infertility treatments naturally, and he was born before our first anniversary. And we thought, like so many people, that, okay, this is how it works. When you want to have a baby, it just happens. And pretty soon after that, we realized that that was not necessarily the case. And we began our treatment. At that point, we were living in Yerushalayim. I was doing my smicha over there by Rakeslik Berkowitz in the Jerusalem Kolel. And we realized that it was time to begin treatment. So we, we began treatment in Israel, which as I'm sure Daniel's aware as a, as a native Israeli, or at least someone living in Israel, that you have the benefits of a socialized system. So the healthcare system is free, which is definitely something that as now living in America, paying tens of thousands of dollars, I can now appreciate that more. But the flip side is that if the government is paying for your treatments, they're going to want to do it at a slower pace so that hopefully they don't have to pay the big bucks for the IVF or, or more invasive treatments that have higher levels of um, effectiveness. So we began our journey there, pretty frustrating process doing it there. It was month after month after month of, of minimal medical treatment. And eventually we were ready to move. I had gotten a job offer in Atlanta or suburb of Atlanta known as Brookhaven. And we got to a point where we were ready to leave Israel. And now we had to prepare for our journey in America. We were going to be living in Atlanta. And it was time to begin our journey there. So we moved to Atlanta. This was about 10 months after we had begun treatment. This was in 2016. And one of the things we had to decide when we got there was now that we were going to be spending a significant amount of money for treatment, we wanted to make sure we were in the best hands. So I looked into, into different clinics over there in Atlanta, spoke to different people in the community, and there was one doctor who repeatedly came up. His name is actually spelled the same as, as our last name. His name is Dr. Danny Shapiro, um, pronounces his name differently, but spelled the same way. And he is a doctor at one of the clinics known as RBA. And another clinic that had come up is the Shady Grove, which is the largest umbrella organization for fertility clinics in the country. So I called RBA first because they had this Dr. Shapiro who had come so highly recommended. And this was in August of 2016. And I said, I have two questions for you guys. I spoke to the office. 
I said, number one, when is the next appointment you have available? And number two, can I request a call back from the doctor? And I'll never forget. They said, um, the next appointment available is in March, which I did a double take. I'd been used to Israel where you just get plugged into whichever doctor is available that day or that week. But this was in August and the next appointment available was March. And the other thing they said is that our, I'm sorry, our doctors do not call people before their patients. And I was obviously somewhat at a loss, taken aback, but I said, okay, what am I supposed to do? I'll make an appointment for March. And that's what I did. And in the meantime, I said, let me call the other clinic. So I called the other clinic and same two questions. When is the next appointment you have? And can your doctor call me back? I'd love to get a chance to talk to him before making a decision about spending 10, 20, $50,000. And to their credit, they actually have an appointment available the next week. And they said, the doctor will call you later today. I wait for the call and didn't think it was actually going to come, but it actually came. Dr. Mark Perlow called me later that day introduced himself and we had a nice talk about what we had been through already. We have unexplained infertility. So there's nothing specific that doctors have found that leads to the infertility we've been through. So he discussed what the prognosis would be, what the plan would be. And at the end of the conversation, I said to him, listen, doctor, I know many people when they go through infertility treatment and they go through IVF, they're very nervous about the chance of having multiples, twins, triplets, or even more, but we specifically would want that. We love children. We'd like to have a large family. Would you help us get to that point? Would you be willing to help us put two or three embryos in if we get to that point of IVF so that we can have a, a larger family quicker? And he said to me, he said, how old's your wife? And at the time she was 24 and he started to laugh. And he said, you think you're having twins with me when your wife's in her twenties? If you want twins, find another clinic. So again, taken aback, and I decided to call my rabbi in Israel, or Yitzhak Berkowitz, to ask what he thought we should do. And I called him up, and he told us very wisely, he said, stick with this doctor. If you become pregnant with one, you're not going to be upset. And if in March you still haven't become pregnant, then you can always fall back on that other appointment that we had already scheduled. So that's what we did. We made this appointment to go the next week to, to see Dr. Perlow, and we began our American journey which obviously was drastically different than in, in Israel. It was a fortune um, insurance for, at that point, we didn't have any insurance coverage over the years. We've had different times where some things were covered, some things weren't. Obviously the, the specialty where something was supposed to be covered and wasn't, all those sorts of uh, fun insurance incidents. But at the end of the day, we began this journey now where we were going to have significant amounts of costs but also a much more significant amount of treatment to hopefully get us to that end of our journey, hopefully as soon as possible. So we began the, the treatment process with him. It was um, several IUIs. Unfortunately, none of them took. And then it was time to begin IVF. <clears throat> and we went through the retrieval process, which of course is a whole story in itself, the, the difficulties and the scheduling conflicts and the amount of things that can go wrong, the ups and downs, the, the constant roller coaster of emotions. And ultimately that was time to now do the transfer to put the embryo back into back into the body to hopefully become pregnant. And again, doctor, we'd love to put in multiples. You're not having twins with me. And sure enough, you put in one and we had the, the infamous two week wait. 
sitting there every day, are we going to be pregnant? Are we going to be pregnant? Are we going to be pregnant? And then unfortunately, devastating news, it didn't take. So we got the, the one free appointment they give, the constellation appointment. And I went to meet with Dr. Perlow, sit down with him. And he said, he said, listen, to be honest, your prognosis is excellent. We had done genetic screening which meant that the embryos we had that we were implanting had already been screened to make sure they were chromosomally normal. And he said, your prognosis is great. It's about a 70% chance it'll work. We'll just do it again. And again, same thing. He's not putting in two. You want to find another clinic. So he puts in one. And of course, I'm making it seem like this is a quick journey. This was over the course of years, this whole process, but speeding it up for the interest of time. And he puts in one. And we get to the point, the end of the two-week wait, and Baruch Hashem, they get back to us that we are pregnant. Now, obviously, for anyone who's been through this journey, you know that that does not in any way mean that you feel secure. That means that you now have somewhat of an optimistic hope, but so much hesitation, so much concern, so much worry, because when you've been through so many things that didn't go well, you're just always having the back of your mind. It's not going to actually happen. Something's going to go wrong. It'll be miscarriage, some other issue. Very, very cautious in the optimism. But we were starting to get happy, obviously, starting to get hopeful. And the way it works is that you go till six weeks still with the reproductive medicine team. And then you have a six-week sonogram. And then if everything looks good, then they'll hand you off to a standard OBGYN. So the way it ended up working in our story, I don't remember why, but the day of the sonogram, when we were going to finally have the um, the ultrasound and finally hear that heartbeat, I ended up, I don't remember why, but I ended up not being at the appointment. So I ended up being in the colol where I learn every morning. And of course, the way our colol is set up, not because of the colol, just the way it, it happens to be set up within the community, there's no cell service in the building. So there is Wi-Fi that the colol has, but... If my wife needs me or anyone else needs me, they will have to text me either through iMessage or WhatsApp. And then I have to literally walk to the street. There, I cannot make a phone call from there. I won't go through, go to the street, get service, and then I can call whoever needs me. So I'm sitting in the in the base matters learning, and my wife texts me. She says, Yosef, you need to call me right now. And I'm thinking, okay, I can't, I can't do this. I'm not going to go walk three minutes to call to hear that it's it's a miscarriage okay we've had we've we knew this was not going to be so so likely we were very very cautious in our optimism and i said to my wife i texted back i said i can't do this i can't go to the street to call for this just just tell me what happened and i'll never forget she sent me back an image and on the image it had baby a and baby b and the one embryo that the doctor insisted on implanting only one had split and we ended up Baruch Hashem with identical twin boys. And the story was so powerful for us to see because so often in any area of life, we box ourselves in. The doctor said, you're only having one. My friend said this, my boss said that, my parents said that. And we sometimes forget that Hashem runs the world. And even though a doctor may tell you, listen, this is your prognosis. I mean, we, we probably both know. I know I know people who the doctors said they weren't going to be able to have children. And they had children. Because at the end of the day, we forget that Hashem is the one running the world. And sometimes if we can appreciate that there is a much broader picture than the limits that we find through the professionals we interact with, like those doctors, 
then hopefully we can appreciate that there is a bigger picture. There is a purpose to our struggle. And at least in my wife and I, in our scenario, we were able to, to find comfort in seeing so clearly that Hashem was really looking out for us the whole time. Wow. Such a powerful story. I mean, to hear that the doctor said only one embryo we're transferring one embryo, not two. You got to find a different doctor if you're going to, if you want to, I mean, the sitting in that position, I'm sure you were thinking, what is he talking about? I want to have two kids. Why can't, if you know, we're paying all this money for treatment, why won't he do what we want to do? Yeah, no, it was definitely uh, an interesting process, but with Barak some beautiful ending. What yeah, was- so that, that is our story. And that is what motivated me to write this book because I felt that if Hashem is showing us, showing us so clearly that he's there for us in our journey, then I felt that I should be there for others, particularly because when we went through our journey, and you, Daniel, may have experienced this as well, I was very much the type who wanted to know everything we were going through. And that's not simple in the process of IVF. It's a world full of unknowns. There's very little literature on the topic in any world, even in the secular literature. And I really was looking for a book that would help me just know what's it going to be like on my day-to-day life? What type of things should I be aware of? And I didn't want this technical medical journals. I didn't want to know the gloom and doom about how difficult it was going to be and how painful it was going to be. I wanted to just know what's life going to look like. So when we had this experience, it motivated me to to push myself and really ourselves because obviously a story like this very much is a story about the couple, my wife and I, not just myself. And it really motivated me to to write this book, put out this resource so that people can have the book that we wish we would have had access to during our journey. It is so needed. And I'm really glad you wrote the book because it's really true that there aren't enough resources out there for couples or even for men when going through going through IVF treatment, even myself. I also wanted to be very involved in being in the room during the procedure, during the retrieval. I was there for the transfer, you know, but the retrieval, they wouldn't necessarily allow me in the room. And the process, oh, what do these shots do? What What is this for? After all, I was the one giving the injections, right? So go figure, we should know what all these things are doing. So it's absolutely really great that you wrote this book. I'm curious, what was it like for you during that two-week week? Because I know myself, during that two-week week, I was on, I was going crazy. I was like, what the heck? What is the answer? How many embryos do we have? How many are healthy? How many, you know, I just, that two-week wait was so hard, so stressful, so painful. What what was it like for you? How did you keep yourself so positive, so motivated? And what advice would you give to couples and to men for that, men specifically for that two-week wait? Yes, I don't think that I was as uh, positive and optimistic as you portray me to be. <laughs> um, th- there's no real answer. I mean, th- the only thing I could recommend, which I learned the hard way, the first time that we were waiting, I thought it was wise to clear my schedule so that I could be available as soon as the call comes in to know the answer, which which basically meant that I sat there torturing myself for hours thinking about both directions the phone call could go. So when that answer came back that it had not worked, that we had the pregnancy had not taken, so I learned the hard way that the next time we had to be much more braced, braced for impact, so to say. So trying to distract ourselves, um, not being too optimistic, those types of things. And that's really the only two things I can recommend. And 
it's not necessarily going to help. It's a very, very difficult part of the process. There's nothing you can do and you really just have to sit and wait. But the more you can distract yourself and the more you can be prepared for either of the two outcomes, hopefully the more manageable it can be. I'm curious on, on the religious side of things, on the clergy side of things, which are a lot of couples approach, you know, in, in Judaism, we have this concept of, of Nita where there's a time where after the woman gets her, you know, her period or is going through treatment, you're not necessarily able to give her a hug or even hold her hand or any of these things. What, what sort of advice do you give men going through it and through the IVF process of how, how specifically to deal with that? That's a great question. I'll actually tell you an interesting story. I, um, I volunteer for an organization in Atlanta called the Jewish Fertility Foundation. And one of the things they do is they bring me around to all of the medical clinics around Atlanta. There's actually a lot of them. There's like 11. And I go to the clinics with them and I present to them the needs of the religious community. And we talk about scheduling things as far as Shabbos and, and holidays and Yom Tiv. And we talk about Nida. And there was a time that one time we'd mentioned some of the rules that the couples can't even touch and they, they can't do different things. And the woman who I um, volunteer for, her name is Alana Frank, she said that a few years prior to this, there was a, something that had happened. I don't remember the specifics, but the doctor was furious with this Orthodox couple that he had because they had just found out that it had not worked. And the way they found out was the natural way she had, she had become a Nida and they came in for the appointment and the doctor couldn't believe how insensitive the husband was that he didn't even hug his wife once. And the point was that had he known that it was for religious reasons, of course, it would have made it much more understandable to him. So it's, it's interesting that, that, that you bring that point up there. There's no, there's no specific answer other than hopefully a person can have the foresight to appreciate that even though, yes, it is difficult that in the precise moment where one finds out it's not a pregnancy is specifically a time where there can't be any physical comfort, but to recognize that in the broader picture, following the halachas of Nida, no question brings our marriages to levels that can't be gotten to without that. Um, so I am part of a non-religious community. So I obviously am Orthodox, but I run a, a shul, which is a cure of shul. So almost our entire congregation is not from, is not observing the laws of Nida, at least not necessarily to the fullest. Some of them at, at different levels. And there's a marked difference you can see in the relationships when someone has a framework of the halachas of Nida, of that constant once a month, yearning to be back together with one's spouse. So although it's not necessarily easy in the moment, but recognizing that bigger picture and the benefits that it provides for a relationship is very powerful. And I'll tell you an interesting um, study that I, I shared in the book. There was a study done in Denmark where they tracked 50,000 couples that were going through infertility from the beginning of their journey along the entire journey until the end of the journey, however it ended, whether pregnancy, no pregnancy. And they found two incredible things. They found that more than 50% of the couples did not make it to the end of the journey, which we understand. So it's a very tough journey. And if a couple is not prepared adequately, it can literally tear the couple apart. But what they also found was that of those couples that remained together throughout, 
almost all of them acknowledge that their marriage got to a point that it could never have gotten to without that struggle. And the point I take from that is that whenever there's a trauma in your life, whether infertility or, or a different trauma, it's an opportunity. It, if you don't handle it well, it can, God forbid, tear apart your relationships. But if you recognize that it's an opportunity to, to re-examine your relationship, to strengthen what you do have, to work on yourself and your relationship with your spouse and with, with Hashem, with your religion, then it really is an opportunity to take your relationship where it is and really bring it to a level that it could not have gotten to without that. I definitely agree, especially after that two-week wait, you know, having a miscarriage. I mean, our relationship, it, it, it grew tremendously. They say that a couple struggles specifically it brings you stronger and closer together because the amount of communication, the amount of effort that, that is needed when you're, when you're going through something like this is 10 times greater than what it is before. And if you could get through going through fertility treatments, suffering a miscarriage, having a baby eventually, then it's endless. The relationship will yeah. be stronger and stronger and stronger. So although people say it is unfortunate that, fertility you know infertility exists and people have to do IVF but on the other hand it does help a lot of couples what I'm curious what are your thoughts on I don't know if there's ever been any any studies on it in particular about the relationship between you know I know we know that women go to the mikvah to purify to purify themselves after you know a miscarriage on the line is there anything that you think connects the spirituality of a guy you know should a guy be going to the mikvah after a miscarriage to be in sync and in communication with his wife i know there's there's something in uh i believe it's boston i think it's called mayim chaim or some organization out there that there's a specific mikvah for life occurrences do you think that there's a spiritual connection that men should be taking on something extra or, or going to the mikvah or doing something more volunteering like that, that would that would boost sort of that that connection in a, such a hard period of time it's an interesting question i've never been asked that before my i don't necessarily think there's a specific reason for that from my perspective what i always found was the most important thing was to just to daven to recognize that certain things are out of your control. There are certain things that you, and many things, not just infertility, there are many things in life. So there are people who struggle financially. There are people who have easy time having children, but then their children have issues, whether special needs, whether mental health issues. And at the end of the day, many, many things in life are beyond our control. And davening to Hashem recognizes that. So it, it really for me, at least, it, it helped twofold. Number one, it helped me realize that, you know what, this is not in my control. So instead of trying to work so hard, this is how it's going to work out. I'm going to make sure this happens. And all these things that we um, form a, a pressure on ourselves, when you recognize that it's out of your control, it allows you to relax. And the other thing is to really recognize that it is up to Hashem. And if we can dive into Hashem and say, listen, this is, I, I need this Hashem. I don't know how, how I'm going to get through life without this next thing, whatever it is, then it's brought down. We know the Gemara brings down, it's brought down to many other places that it can really change the mazel we have. And it can really lead to Hashem saying, you know what? 
I wasn't sure you were going to be deserving or in the position to have that child, but you've now shown me you do. So that's what my Rebbeim advised me. And that's what I found to be very helpful is to dive in. And really it's, it's actually one of the interesting things that I somewhat bemoan the fact of now that I've gotten beyond that point of treatment is that I don't, I haven't davened in a way that I davened like that since. Because there, those moments where you really recognize, listen, there's, I'm desperate. There's nothing I can do really can bring you to a point of, of really intense sincerity in the davening you have. And fortunately and unfortunately, I really have not been in that position since. And it's an interesting thing that I think about often that sometimes there, there's things we lose out on when we no longer have the struggles that we were challenged with. Absolutely. You know, it's true that a lot of times people pray, you know, for having a kid after a loss and they don't realize that that connection afterwards and how amazing, how much of a miracle it really is. I mean, I know in my personal journey, you're right. In that moment, you're, you're, you're really connecting. You're saying, you know, please, please let this work. We're investing so much time. We really want to have children. Let's, let's hope for this work. But sometimes those struggles lead to opportunities. Like, for example, if I didn't have suffer the miscarriage or have to go through IVF treatment, I don't know that what I'm doing now in terms of building an organization and helping men going through these struggles, miscarriage, infant loss, stillbirth, and infertility would ever exist. So clearly God puts you in these situations for a reason and it's supposed to make you stronger. Yes, definitely. What um I guess what what would be your 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 biggest takeaway your advice for for men going through this? I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, you're supposed to be there. You know, a lot of times men say, you know, go out go out and work and support themselves so they can stay home and and be with the kids. I mean, it takes a tremendous financial toll. Do you find that men, especially in the United States, are working harder than ever? at their jobs because of the financial impact that fertility treatments cost? It's an interesting question. I don't, I don't know the answer. I don't think that that salaries here are structured that way. Meaning I don't think you can just say, Oh, I have more expenses. I need to work harder to earn more money. It's, it's not really necessarily like that. I think that men have incredible amounts of pressure to make sure they can pay the bill at the end of the month. But I don't think there is necessarily that that opportunity even to solve it, so to say, by working harder. Because in the corporate America, you generally you have a salary and that's your salary. You can't just say, hey, the boss, I'm going to work harder this month so that I can have more money. So it ends up you feel really, really stuck because there's almost nothing you can do to bring in more money. And suddenly you can have 10, 20, 50, $100,000 in bills that you would not have foreseen when you started your career. So I definitely see a lot of financial stress and pressure, but I actually don't even see that potential solution that you are um, alluding to. I don't think it exists. I think it's really just the pressure and figuring out a lot of people have to take out loans. We took out a loan. Um, a lot of people have to ask family members for money, friends, grants. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of details that go into making sure that you can pay um, one of the things that's interesting is that the, the government is becoming, or at least starting to be better about having discussions about mandating certain coverage. 
So I'm hopeful that in the next few years that it may become something that is covered, which would at least alleviate some of the difficulty of the treatments, at least in the financial end. It is so needed for it to be covered because there are horror stories of couples selling their homes, going into debt. I mean, if you talk about the, the, the painful costs of living in America, I know you made the transition from Israel America, especially in the Jewish world. I mean, private yeshiva tuition, home payments, electricity bills, um, insurance. I mean, the costs go on and on and on. And then to add this extra layer of fertility treatment, I mean, it's, it's mind blowing how people are doing. I, I, I give you a lot of credit for being able to, to, to pull it off. I don't know that I, I would have financially been able to do Yes, I would have to look for grants and different things. But I mean, it, it's just crazy how much money people have to throw in. And especially since people don't know that it's going to work. You know, it's, sometimes you have to try new things. Yeah, definitely. What, um, if, if you had to do it all over again, I know your rabbinical journey, working in investment banking, living in Israel, then getting this job opportunity in America. If you were to do this all over again, would you have stayed in Israel even with all the bureaucracy because of the fertility, you know, treatment, assuming there was job opportunities and things for you in Israel? Would you have stayed put because of the cost of the fertility treatments? I don't think so. My wife and I are are a little unique in that we, we tend to underemphasize the significance of money. So for us, the obviously we had to pay the bills and we had to come up with money and we did have to take out loans and we did have to get grants and we did have to get money from family members. But at, at the end of the day, I think our decisions for where we were going to live were not going to be made around that. So knowing that in America, we felt that we could get quicker help, not necessarily better, but at least quicker um, the fact that it came at a cost was not necessarily a deterrent for us. It it was a step. It was a process. It was something that had to be addressed. But at least in our specific case, it was not something that was going to make the decision for us. I know there are many people who actually move to other countries to be able to afford treatment. I actually just spoke in Scottsdale, Arizona last night, and someone came over to me. I can't remember if it was the person themselves or they said that they had a friend who went to India for treatment because there was something there. I don't remember if it was the financial or the process, but they went to India and a lot of people do. A lot of people have to go to other countries to find a process that's either better for them from the medical side or cheaper or free or doable. So yes, I know for many people, it is a very significant factor. It happens to be in our specific case, it wasn't the biggest factor. So interesting. In our case, one of the reasons we moved to Israel was because we knew that the fertility treatments would be covered. And it it just, it helped tremendously not having that pressure of having to worry about, okay, all the extra costs, it made it our lives a little bit easier. Yes, there's hopes to jump through, but it just, it made one level of stress a little bit less. Yeah, no, definitely. There are definitely many, many people who do that. It happens to be for us specifically, it wasn't something that we were considering. What on the pulpit side, because you're in that unique position where you can give, you know, uh, inspiration to, to those who are, who are struggling on the pulpit. What do you say to couples who oftentimes there are triggers? So for me, for example, big trigger before we had a child, even still is on Simchat Torah when all the children go under, you know, Dali for Kolin Aram and 
for me, having to go through the IVF process, having a miscarriage, I mean, I still struggle with that day, with that, with that whole thing. I mean, I, I personally believe that there should be, you know, one prayer for the entire community as opposed to all the kids going on. I mean, what, what are your thoughts coming in as uh, on, on the pulpit side of things for your community, advice for other communities? Do you think that it should be inclusive for everybody, that should people walk out of the room just like, you know, during the remembrance prayer on, on Yom Kippur, if you don't have, have uh, you know, someone that, that passed away, you walk out of the room. Do you think that people should walk out of the room for these things? Or do you think there should be some type of awareness of infertility, miscarriage, stillbirth, and infant loss? Yeah, it's a good question. I would say it's a, it's a combination of both. I think that um, on the one hand, that there there needs to be more sensitivity from the community. Um, I'll share interestingly enough when I wrote the book. So I had originally wrote it meant primarily for those going through treatments. And I contacted Rav Shmuel first, who's one of the, the biggest post in, in America. He lives in Chicago. And I asked him if he would write a, a Askama for the book. So he said, send me the manuscript. I'll get back to you. And he got back to me and he decided he was going to write Askama, but his Askama was different than, than the others because what he told me was that he felt it was more important for this book to be read by every other Jew, the people who are not going through treatment, so that they could understand how sensitive they needed to be. Because so often the reason why people are not sensitive is not because they are malicious people. It's not because they don't want to be supportive. It's that they don't understand how invasive, how complicated, how overwhelming the process is. So they can't be supportive at the level it's deserved because they don't realize what the, what the challenge is. So what I first explained was that this book hopefully will be a resource for the other people, those not going through it, have no idea what it is, that they'll go through it and they'll be able to say, oh my gosh, I, I could never have dreamed what you were going through. And interestingly enough, he was obviously, he's very wise and he was correct because the most common feedback my wife and I have received since we published the book is from people who have not been through IVF sharing how they had never imagined it was as difficult as it is. Incredible. So on that end, there definitely needs to be a point where communities are, are in general, individuals are more sensitive to others. As far as each individual, each individual has to know. It happens to be I also, that was a very, very difficult time for me. Also, there are many people who don't think twice about it. So each person has to know. There's nothing wrong with a person walking out during that part of davening. If, if it's a painful part, obviously, everyone has to know themselves. But I don't necessarily think that there's any reason to alter that prayer because at the same time, we have to also recognize that there's a need to appreciate that those who have children, there's there's a significance to those children and making sure that they're part of the the Torah, the culmination of the finishing the Torah and Simchas Torah. So it is a, it's a tough balance, but at the end of the day, there um, there needs to really be work on both ends. There needs to be more sensitivity in general, and each individual has to know whether they're cut out for those specific parts of um, of Judaism that are difficult. Interestingly enough, when I wrote the book, so. The, there are a few times in the book where I reference the difficulty about going to shul for a, a couple without children or in the process when you see a couple with 13 kids in shul and all their kids are lined up in chairs and you're sitting there by yourself. And I wrote, I think I mentioned it two or three times and the editor at the second or third time made a comment, 
you already wrote this. I think we should remove. And I wrote back, I said, I understand I already wrote it, but I want to reiterate it because for me, it was something that was very difficult. So it's definitely something I'm not in any way discounting how significant it is, but it is important to recognize that there needs to also be room for those tefillahs, for those who do have children, because that's also a crucial part of uh, the future of Judaism. Yep, it is. What are, I'm going back to the two, two thoughts here. I'm going back to the awareness side of things. What do you think needs to be done in the Jewish community and the world in general about awareness and education about what it really means with dealing with infertility and dealing with pregnancy loss? Do you think we really need to go back to the school system? Do you think we need to go back, you know, to all the synagogues and all the all the different places that people learn about what it is like to have to to make a baby to have a child? How do we raise awareness and get rid of the stigma that dealing with infertility, having a miscarriage is bad. I mean, if you look at the statistics, one in four pregnancies end in a miscarriage. One in eight couples struggle with infertility. One in 160 births end in a stillbirth. And one in a thousand babies die of of SIDS. I mean, how do we raise awareness and, and change kind of the way people view it? After all, there is so much tremendous pressure, especially on a religious couple to have children. I mean, this is some of the fundamentals of, of, of religious Judaism that, you know, you got to have at least two kids, one boy, one girl. I mean, how do we change, how do we change the stigma? Because when I'm looking at this, the, the IVF process is just so stressful on a couple, especially on a man, you know, you're praying for it, you're doing all these things. It's just, how do you deal with that? So I don't have a perfect answer. Obviously this is a, this is a big question. Ultimately, I, I just hope that people will continue to to want to learn more because that's that's really the only thing we can do. We can put out material, we can put out information, podcasts, books, and we can just hope people will go through it. And like I said, a lot of people who have read the book have said that they're so glad they read it because now they understand it. It's like I said, it's not a malicious insensitivity. It's an ignorant insensitivity. It's They just don't understand what it is. So the more we can let people be aware and share resources that they can read and understand, the more they can hopefully be understanding of what the difficulties and challenges are that are associated with the IVF and infertility process. Absolutely. One other question. I'm really curious, you know, when you're writing the book and you were going to all these rabbis to ask, I'm calling it Escamas, but for their recommendation. Why did you feel that that was so important, you know, as part of, as part of the book process, the publishing process? Why didn't you say, okay, you know what? I went through this. This was my struggle. I want to tell my story. Why do you need the, so to speak, the rabbinical endorsement from all these rabbis? Yes. I think that ties in with your previous question. And that is that there is this stigma. There is all this preconceived ideas about what it involves and, is it sneeze to read a book about this? Is it not sneeze? And because of all the religious sensitivities around it, I felt it was crucial to have as many of the big name Gedolim and Postkim approving it so people could say, oh, you know what? I never learned about this because I wasn't sure it was something that I should be doing. Oh, but if Shmuel Kamenetsky or Shmuel first of Aaron Schefter, some of the biggest Gedolim and, and Postkim in the world wrote a recommendation, then you know what? I will read it. So that was really my goal. My goal was that people who may have some hesitation should hopefully feel comforted in knowing that some of the biggest gadolim in the world have, have read through it and approved it, so to say, so that they should feel comfortable.
Did you get any pushback from any of these rabbis about only the from in the Hasidic world? So in the Hasidic world, there's they're a little stricter about how soon a person can go through IVF if they already have a child, those type of things. So in the Hasidic world, there was a little bit of pushback, not not negative, just informationally, like we we the Hasidic rabbi would have told you you have to wait longer, so we're not comfortable writing a haskama. Those type of things, but nothing like against the fact that there was a book being written on the subject or anything like that. What does the Hasidic community say? I mean, you said, you know, you got pushback. I don't know. I I don't know the specifics. All I know is that they have have more stringencies, I guess I would say, towards how quickly they would they would recommend their congregants going through something like that so fascinating because you would think the opposite you would think you know you're struggling with this you want to have more children why why wait long you know the longer you wait people not that things get diminished per se but the longer you wait the the harder the struggle is going to be i mean the pain the pain will grow people are going to be yeah i don't know the specifics i imagine it has to do with with the balance of of letting hashem handle it versus medicine but i i really don't know it's not uh not my field i'm not fussy that (laughs) <laughs> what other advice would you you know the take-home message for all of our listeners out there through your journey what 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 would be your take-home message i think the number one thing i would say is to recognize that it's out of your control and that you have to recognize that hashem is running this you have to daven and you also have to realize that it is a real trauma because what i see often in couples in my own congregation is that people think oh, it's not a big deal. I'm going through IVF. I'll probably be, have a baby in a few months. And then six months later, six years later, whatever it is, they're devastated because their hopes were so unrealistic, so high that it just was not practical. So I think that people, the, the biggest message I can give them is to appreciate and recognize that it is a real trauma while at the same time recognizing that it is handcrafted for you by Hashem and that the biggest thing you can do for yourself is to daven, is to say to Hashem, listen, I understand this is out of my control, and I'm begging you, please, to to help me out. Powerful stuff. You heard it. Thank you. you heard it first from Rabbi Yosef Shapiro. To all of our listeners out there, please get a copy of the book. It's available on Amazon, I believe, and where else? Definitely available through Feldheim, which is the the Shabir on Feldheim's website, in it together. And I'm also, I'm happy if anyone has any questions, they can be in touch with Daniel. He can put them in touch with me. I'm happy to help in any way I can. Great. Thank you so much for uh, being here. And uh, we look forward to helping all those in need on this journey. Thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure. You've just listened to another great episode of Men Talk with Daniel Landau. If you've suffered from miscarriage, infertility, stillbirth, or infant loss and want to open up about it, reach out. We'd love to have you on the show. You can also join our Facebook group, or if you'd like to get involved and start a chapter in your neighborhood, visit our website, www.menshelpline.org today. Until next week, stay strong, and remember, you're not alone.